Welcome to episode 2 of our new series, There Is No Planet B. In this episode, Marlene Halliday continues her conversation with Commonweal's Robin McAlpine. If you missed episode 1 of this series, it's also available on podcast and on our YouTube channel. So this is episode 2, A Coalition of the Willing. Hello, I'm Marion Halliday and this is part two of a recent conversation that we recorded with Robin McAlpine, who's Head of Strategy Development at Commonweal. Robin founded Commonweal, which is often described as a think tank, which it is, but much more importantly than that, it's a campaigning group, which campaigns for social and economic equality in Scotland it launched in 2013 and, and they regularly publish papers and work uh, exploring an alternative economic and social model for Scotland. You'll find all of that on their website at commonweal.scot. So in part two, Robin began by making the point that although the climate emergency is a global concern with global effects, when it comes down to it, it's local decisions which drive it. It's our choices, it's our short-term goals, our own and our government's decisions, our financial centres have all produced this emergency and we buy into that, literally. Now, if you're a Marshall Islander watching this or a villager on the Ganges Delta in Bangladesh, you won't agree with that, and rightly so. But it's surely true of those of us in the developed world. Here's Robin. Menace is global. Yes, Every square yes. inch of this is something we do in Scotland. Even where we are trading, so even when we would be at buying products made in, I don't know, China or Indonesia, which emitted carbon, we're choosing to buy them. We in Scotland are choosing to buy them. We're consuming them. We're disposing of them. It's our actions that are creating this, nobody else's. Yeah, yeah. And so when I realised just how local it is, because you've actually, for anyone that doesn't know, we, what we did was we basically went through all seven environmental crises. Climate change is only one of them. We went through all seven environmental crises, tried to work out what was Scotland's contribution to them and where and how, what was it we were doing that was causing them. And again, you suddenly find out they're very locally specific. It happened here. You don't take 3% off the top of every peat bog everywhere at once. You take a big chunk out of a peat bog and you can drive there and say, they are that. So that, you know, this is the thing. A long time ago, I suddenly realised that negotiated global coalitions are not going to fix this. At the risk of channeling George W, I think we need to accept that it's coalitions of the willing. I mean, I think what's going to happen is you're going to find that, I don't know, uh, maybe a Scotland, an independent Scotland in the Nordic countries and a Netherlands and uh, maybe a Belgium and maybe a Portugal. Maybe, well, we all do the right thing. And then we basically just boycott countries that don't. Then mm. we start to say, right, okay, well, there's now 30 of us in a block. We will not trade with countries that don't clean up their act. We will build up over the next 10 years greater capacity between us. We will trade among each other because 
we can trade with each other in confidence because we're all doing the right things and cleaning up our acts. So if we buy something from you know one of these other countries, we know that it's been made to a standard that is acceptable for the environment. Yeah. And if that means that you you don't get to buy one particular piece of plastic tat from what you know from one particular online behemoth retailer, um, well, so be it. That's that's what we're going to have to go for. So this idea. So that's of, interesting, isn't it? Because that's a that's a kind of bringing together that coalition of the willing. I really like that phrase. It is maybe to do with certain countries. The ones you've mentioned are all quite small. You could probably add in New Zealand. I yeah. mean, maybe maybe Canada. I don't know where Canada. Oh no, Canada's the, tar sands. Canada's a baddies as well because yeah, the tar sands. They're, 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 they're not as bad as they were, yeah. but they were the other. They were the other country along with um, Australia, which undermined two of the recent agreements because tar sands are particularly polluting. Yeah, yeah, they but are. They're dreadful. They're, they're worse than fracking. But Canada was. Yeah. really seriously the mining industry in canada was pushing hard for the extraction and they undermined but you see the point is once you've got five you'll get six then you'll get seven then you'll get 12 then you'll get 20 then yeah. you'll get 50. that's yeah. that's how that's how we need to do this because if we are moving at the pace of the slowest which is what we're currently doing we're moving at the pace that australia will let us we're moving at the pace that america or china will let us if we keep moving at that pace we're, we're not going to do it What's really frustrating to me is Scotland could fix this really quickly. Here's another, you want another cheery thing. <laughs> I was, I was talking to, he's, he's an economist that went to kind of a greater degree of environmental economics. So I was zooming with him, he's in London. I was zooming with him. We're just kind of chatting about something vaguely like this. And what he said was, actually, you know what? I did a spreadsheet, which is, if it gets really bad, where should I go? <laughs> right. And he says, you know, Scotland was top three. I says, I know. Uh, yeah, I could I imagine that. Yeah. Scotland's a top three country. We have space. We have relentless volumes of energy. We have enormous forestry potential. We are comparatively high-lying. Not the coastal areas, but, you know, we've got plenty high-lying areas, so we're not going to get... Unlike Bangladesh, land. which is probably going to get disappear. Yeah, yeah. There's parts of the yeah. country, there's parts of the world that will no longer exist as parts of the world that we understand them. The world's going to be filled with Atlantises. There's going to be buried cities, but underwater yeah. cities all over all over the world. Scotland has this capacity to be, I mean, really genuinely. You know how I'm. I'm, I'm gonna. I'm sorry for being so kind of angry, despondent. But I'm tired of hearing people in Scotland saying we can be world leading on, and a bunch of things that we can be world. We can just be decent. You know, we can catch up with what you would call the civilized world. But we're not going to be world leaders and everything. We're not that big a country. Let's be realistic. This one we could be world leaders. Yeah, we could be yeah. world leaders on decarbonisation because, I mean, there's probably us, I don't know, maybe New Zealand. Uh, I'm trying to think who's got an energy capacity and a land space capacity to a population ratio. I don't think there could be many. I mean, if you know, if you're talking about not three hundred thousand, Iceland's fine. That's good. Iceland's fine. Yeah, it's Norway's good. not. Norway's not very good. It's got a, a lot of land, but it's all just goes straight up from the ocean. A lot of it, so it hasn't got much. Um, you know, but, but it's but on. it's got but it's got. A, it's not about living on so much as resources. Resources. So it's, right. it's, it's it's forestry and renewable crop production. Yeah. So. It's really the kind of balance between your natural resources and your population. This is why 
I get so incredibly frustrated when I hear the Scottish government grandstanding about being 5% better the rest of the world or better than Britain. I'm like, I know, but we've got about twice the potential. So 5% better is a terrible, terrible disappointment. <laughs> terrible yeah. disappointment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and even at that, I mean, I cannot say this enough. It really pains me. But Chris Stark, he's the chief executive of the Climate Change Committee. So very, very highly respected um, expert in climate change and, and the UK's kind of leading. Uh, the, he, he was asked at a parliamentary inquiry in Scotland, uh, part of the committee inquiry, what did he make of the Scottish government's climate change plans? And he described them as being on the fringes of credibility. Now, it's a it's a terrible flaw in our media that this hasn't been repeated back over and over and over again. It was earlier this year. I mean, this is a big deal. Nobody is saying that the Scottish government's plans are credible, but very serious people are saying when when he says fringes of credibility, that's his telephone voice. What he means is this isn't real, and it's primarily because we've got so much lobbying by the oil and gas industry that our plans are heavily reliant on carbon capture and storage. And carbon capture and storage doesn't work. It mm. doesn't work. It's never worked. It probably won't work. Even if it works, it only partially works. And the only thing it really does is fool people into thinking that we can keep burning oil and gas. Yeah, it can have a bit of effect on the margins. You know, it can have a little bit of an effect. If somebody, makes it, solution. If somebody solution. can make it work, Right? Yeah, so someone can to, make it work. If yeah. I need to say this, they've been trying for nearly 30 years, and you know, these are trial upwards, right? Nobody has met a target ever in their trials upwards, right? The one that I think is the one that you need to really focus on is and there's a big plant in the US. Now they were doing this off an industrial plant. They're easier to capture because it's a single source of emission. And they spent 7.5 billion pounds was invested to put carbon capture and storage in the back of that plant. And two, no, three years ago now, they mothballed it. It doesn't work. Mm. Right? Now, mm. you don't invest seven and a half billion pounds and walk away from it if it's nearly there or it's going to work. Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't work. So we've got to wake up to this soon. One of the problems here, and again, it's another one of my frustrations, is that Scotland's in this awful weird place. Not by any manner of means all, but an awful lot of the people who would be the natural climate agitators in Scotland are also strong indie supporters. And we've got this polarisation problem whereby the constitutional debates driving people into purely pro-India or anti-Indy camps. Now, this does split the environmental movement a little bit, although not as much as some would like you. Most progressives are indie sympathetic. Um, but what it means is there's this kind of, well, we can't be criticising our own side too much. Unfortunately, our own side is the government. And the government needs to be criticised very severely over this. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of our problems is that if you see... The Scottish government is doing terribly. Someone will say, "Oh, you're a unionist plan, or you're talking, or you're talking down Scotland, or whatever it is." And you say, "No, no, no!" But you would not be arguing that. 
if it wasn't for this strange but you're not you're a you're a progressively minded person you must know that doing yeah, basically yeah. the same as the uk is not enough it's this awful dynamic in scotland is the there's not a strong voice saying this isn't good enough now you've got it recently you've got quite a lot of commentators saying it to which i say hallelujah thank god we need more of you to say this more often until the public understands it's true. Who's the household name that's the face of climate change action in Scotland? I mean, we don't really have such a thing. That's a concern. And I don't really watch BBC a lot. I don't watch broadcasts. It's nothing to do with boycotting the BBC. It's just that, here, top tip folks, I was a political lobbyist. If you want to know what politicians are doing, don't listen to them. It's quite important. Focus on what they're doing, not what they're saying. I don't really watch the BBC very much, but as far as I can tell from what I've seen of what I know, BBC Scotland isn't exactly challenging the Scottish government on the state of progress or what's happening or, or, or what they're doing. And, and if we don't get the pressure on them, if we don't have the pressure on the Scottish government, then it will all drift. We need to make this an urgent issue now. And I'll tell you just one more thing for anyone that's not familiar with the work. The reason it's an urgent issue is it's a fair bit before you can get started properly. The vast majority of what we need to do to decarbonise is basically a big engineering job. And you can't just say, right, we've changed our mind. We're going to start tomorrow. Because what you're actually saying is, right, we've changed our mind. We're going to start tomorrow to do the surveying, planning, workforce development, supply chain development. Uh, and securing all of these things need to be done before you dig a hole and i mean if we're being generous uh, this is the kind of sad sack thing i ask right so i was <laughs> i met had a we had a coffee with the danish embassy's leading expert in district heating and we'd done lots of policy work in district heating already so i knew most of the basics and we sat having this coffee and the only thing i kept badgering him on was what's your lead times what's your lead times yeah yeah and which is really geek but the answer is they're very used to it. So they've got entire industries that are used to installing and running and managing district heating. And for them, if you were going to pick a small town and say, do that, they're looking at a lead time of three to four years. And that's with a full workforce and good knowledge and a bunch of companies that, that do the technologies and a lot of installers that, and the infrastructure behind it because they've got lots of district heating already and so on and they are kind of three or four years before you get started so we need to get started well maybe our new minister for green jobs and green skills will help with that a bit we need to get started and and i mean what you were saying earlier about that coalition of the willing like i said at the beginning i, I haven't been very optimistic about you know this meeting being this cop being success but actually if if what came out of it was a bit more of a, a definite move of getting the people who are willing together to start acting that would seem to me to be a, su a success there's a there's a theory which comes from the dance floor i believe this is genuinely a social psychological theory which is the two things you need are the first mover and the second mover yeah right so if you think about an empty dance floor at a scottish wedding because we're not that inhibited until we're Bluter that we only got on the dance floor. Yeah. Right, so the first person to go into a dance floor, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, it is. And then what you watch is everyone else stands around and going, I quite fancy a wee jig, but I'm not going second. 
<laughs> right? And so what you get is the second person that goes up, and then it's like, right, that's fine, that's us, permission now, and it, and it goes. What we're needing globally is a first mover and a second mover. Yeah. We need yeah. somebody to start doing this, and we need them to start talking to somebody else. Yeah. And I mean, I'd like to see Scotland as the first mover, and I would like to see us talking to, I don't know, I mean, the Nordics would be obvious options, but don't underestimate the capacity to talk to people further afield. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be local. We could we could tie up with one of the more progressive of the Latin American countries. Well, I was going to say, actually, Nicaragua came to mind. Costa Rica, Costa doing some Rica. wonderful things. Yeah, um, yeah. You've got places I mean, like New Zealand's an obvious one, but but yeah. Central America. And you've got you've got you've got somewhere like Bhutan, which is way ahead. Yeah, way way way. Of everybody, yeah, yeah. so. I, I kind of start saying when you stop and you see, oh, but that sounds awfully restrictive, McAlpin. You're only, we're only allowed to buy things from others who are in the coalition. I'm saying, well, Costa Rican coffee is pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's not like we're saying here that we are going to give up in the world. What we're saying is this is really urgent. We need to do something. And yeah. this is why yeah. we went on the holiday. Because this is very common with my poor children. We went on holiday to Sweden, pissed in the whole time. And uh, we went into a shop and someone says, says oh, you've, you, you've got a Scottish accent, the local guy. I says, aye, aye, we're just here on holiday. He says, why? I says, I know, it's just like, it's just like being in bloody Edinburgh with different accents. But anyway, it was, was pissing with rain the whole time. But I did the boat tour. And I came away with that, I don't know how to phrase it. It was this. There was a kind of stunned anger, was what I felt. A determination. Because in Sweden, in the 70s, they said, we've got a problem here. We're just going to build a million houses in 10 years. Good houses, district heating, properly done the whole thing. And there was a whole bunch of other things they did. There was a whole program. Yeah. And they just did it. And you're like, this was not all the houses that were built in Sweden. This was 1 million top quality houses. That's one tenth at the time nearly of the entire population so one in ten people they built a brand new house for them these were quality houses yeah, in impressive yeah. blocks built by the public sector we pat ourselves in the back for a couple of hundred council houses a year now and then you know we claim that the rest of them are also affordable housing but they're not i mean it's not it's just, yeah, just private yeah. sector development i mean all, all of that's pr pretty pretty impressive apart from independence they had nothing that we don't, except for, and this is the point, just a bit of ambition and just a bit of confidence. Yeah, That's what we're lacking, ambition yeah. and confidence. We yeah. don't have the ambition, we don't have the confidence. And I came away from that, I remember I was stepping off that boat when we got back. At that point, I think I was about 45, so I am determined before I'm dead that Scotland does something brave and ambitious and big and major just something we've been 30 years now twiddling our fingers we got a parliament and we didn't use it well enough what's the most exciting thing that happened in scotland but i mean qualifying for the euros i mean what what's the big big thing that we did in scotland that you would honestly point at and say see we can do stuff I don't know what it is, and it's really, really sad. This is what we can do. I've become yeah. convinced that this is the thing that we can do in my lifetime. That you know, you look back, and you say, "God, weren't we brilliant?"
here's a question then for you about what what you might be able to do it's it's actually val gold what yeah. three top things could be done to improve public transport for ordinary folk in scotland now you see it straightforward that's one of the most difficult questions i believe that's one of the most difficult questions in the entire field of um climate change mitigation the reason for this is if you look at the vast bulk of what we've got to do heating house insulation electricity generation food production land management in the vast majority of it we know what we're doing we know the technologies it's old technologies that fixes the problem there's nothing there's nothing particularly complicated about it that's different with transport there's a bunch of things happening in transport just now, technology things. And the technology things that are happening in transport are happening very fast. And it's quite difficult to tell where they're going to end up. Now, I think I know where they're going to end up, but this is very early in the cycle. And this is where it starts to get really complicated because I know everyone thinks that public transport is the way. But actually, I don't think that's going to be how we the way it goes. I think it's going to go more personalised transport. So people tell me, yeah, but buses are so efficient because you pack all those people on, which means that the efficiency of shifting the bus yeah. around is, to which I say, ah, you've never been on the 23 to Trinity at two o'clock in the afternoon. And pretty empty, yeah. Well, I did, I did it once. It was a giant hunk of metal <laughs> dragging me and two old ladies. I was going down to Atlantic Quay for a meeting and I was saying, this isn't efficient at all. Three of us could have made it, could have gone in a taxi. You see, this is what I think is going to happen. I think what's going to happen is vehicles, cars are going to go driverless. And to make that really work, we're going to ban human drivers from the roads. So human drivers are really bad, really bad. I mean, almost all the problems with, with road networks are because of human drivers. And if anybody's really geekily interested in this, it's largely because when we brake, we brake a bit too hard. And when we accelerate, we accelerate a bit too hard. So what this does is it creates what's known as, this is, this is wave science, it's what's known as rarefactions and condensations. So it stretches out and it compresses and it stretches out and it compresses. And in physics, when you keep doing that, if you stretch out and you compress and you stretch out and you compress, what it does is that, that process of stretching and compressing absorbs energy. Now, if you take that analogy and you apply it to uh, the M8 going into Glasgow, well, what happens is every time somebody slows down, everyone behind them slows down, and it gets worse and worse and worse the further you go back. And then when they accelerate off, everyone accelerates off, but it stretches out again. But they stretch <laughs> out too fast. The ones at the back can't. So have you ever been in one of those traffic jams in a motorway where you get to the end of it and there's nothing there? There's nothing there, yeah. That's what that yeah. is. Yeah. That's purely, that can happen because one human slams their feet in the brakes when the person behind them is not accepting, and the person behind that, and the person behind that, and the person behind that. <laughs> See if all vehicles accelerated and slowed down at a consistent pace. Most of our traffic congestion... Well, I have often sat in traffic jams and thought that exact thing, actually, usually with a few swear words kind of, you yeah. know, kind of thrown in, because yeah. you're thinking, for goodness sake. Here's what I think is going to happen. We are going to end up in a world where you will pull out your smartphone, take out an app, click move me, you're going to say, one person, no luggage, go in here, and it'll know where you are at the moment. And within 20 seconds, a car will turn up and you'll just, a vehicle will turn up. You'll just climb in it and you'll go. And if you're just one person going down to Trinity, it'll be a one person pod car. 
And if you're a family of six going to the airport with lots of luggage, you'll see six people, luggage, airport, they'll send you a bigger one. So if you stop and you think about what that would mean, you would have the entire of picking Artery Road, Princess Street, Queen Street, Edinburgh. But most people in, in cities tra travel alone. So what you'll have is lots and lots of pod cars, two abreast in the roads, 10 centimetres apart from each other, moving at a constant speed all the way through the city. It moves, it moves people really fast. Dr now, it, these are driverless. driverless yeah, yeah. There'll, be no, yeah. Oh, there'll be no driver. There's a, there, that won't happen. That, that'll be gone. And so what I mean by that is, Nobody's going to own a car. I think this is where there's big change. I don't think anyone's going to own a car. I think you'd be mad to own a car. Um, some people might lease it. Out in a rural area, you might lease a car because, you know, here you might be three, you know, five minutes before you can get a car out here, something like that. I don't know. This is the problem is that I, I think that there's going to be bigger changes in the, in the future of transport than we think there's going to be, but we don't quite know what they are. And that's the one bit of our plan where we said, right, the one thing we almost certainly know is that electric is going to be at the heart of it. So bigger vans and lorries, certainly trains and certainly sea ferries, yeah. uh, bigger boats, they're all probably going to run in hydrogen. There's weight yeah. reasons and charges, yeah. but they're probably going to run in hydrogen. All other transport, apart from airplanes, is going to run electric. So the key thing that we can do is get the charging infrastructure in place for whatever comes next. Even that isn't straightforward. Because if I'm right and you don't own a car, then the second you get out of a car, you will think about it again, it'll know when it needs to and it'll bugger off and charge itself somewhere. So you can have a char you can have all your charging taking place in a defunct... You've got to really think about the changes. This is what I mean. No road markings. The roads can be narrower. No further need for car parks. Car parks will be a thing of the past. You will have no need for a garage. Everyone's garage can become a home office or whatever they want to do. You know, a gym, whatever you want it to be. No more traffic cops. There will never be an argument. Traffic cops will just disappear. Um, but in those cases, you can just take a defunct multi-story, the cars will bugger off there and charge themselves. Meanwhile, if I'm wrong and everyone owns their own electric car, somehow we're going to have to work out how to charge them probably overnight where they're parked. And that's a nightmare because it's no bother if you've got your own drive and you're a single-story house um, or if you've got a garage, ideally, because you can just charge it in there. But if you park street side, what are you going to do? Run a cable from your front door, down through your garden, across the pavement and into your car? Or are we going to put street side car charging up every residential street? Now that's a massive, massive job. I mean, that's, that's becoming the size of the problem of the district heating. Or do we get new technologies in? Can we increase the pace of battery charging? Or do we go for battery swapping, where the batteries get charged outside the car, and when it's time, you drive your car to a what would have been a petrol station and they just swap the batteries out for you, so it's, and off you go. So to answer the question, the problem I have with transport, and I'm going to say it again, I'm not what you would call in the mainstream of thinking in this in the moment, but I really do think that's where we're going to go. At the moment, what we could really do is just invest in a proper integrated public transport network for the time being that we've got. And the, the, the First Minister was challenged earlier in the week about why it was that a unified travel card could be given to 
all the delegates at COP, but that such a scheme couldn't yeah. exist for Scotland. And the answer to that is because we've got a massively deregulated and fragmented transport yeah. system. Yeah, yeah. And what COP is really getting is legalised fare dodging. So this is just a card. The, the Scottish government's negotiated with all the transport providers and said, right, this is just a card. Let this person on for nothing. We'll give you a bung. If you're going to prepay it, which is what this would be, there's a lot more logistics. You would really want to get your transport properly coordinated. But that sort of thing, to make it easily, seamlessly possible to travel around with a single payment without planning your journey using a spreadsheet before you go anywhere. So I'm not sure if we did get three top things in reply to our um, I, what I would One use, of them is driver, in, the driverless cars. No, no, driverless is where I think we go to. Yeah, in the short term, integrated, integrated travel cards. Yep. A national transport company to properly coordinate yep. and regulate the existing transport providers that we've got so they start to integrate and link up with each other. Uh, I would take a fair chunk of it back into collective ownership itself. And straightforwardly, we need to invest more. So we're closing stations, railway stations at the moment. We need to not be doing that. We need to be expanding yeah. the yeah. public transport. So those are the three things that we can do immediately. But I would say that this is probably, I don't think that's going to be what transport looks like soon. Join us again next week for the third part of this conversation. There Is No Planet B is brought to you by Indie Life Media Productions. The presenter is Marlene Halliday. The podcast was produced and edited by Fiona McGregor. And the music used is Freedom by Scott Buckley. Thanks for listening. <laughs>